Well, at this time, let's turn in our copies of God's Word to Paul's epistle to the Romans, chapter 5, and verses 1 through 11. Let's give careful attention now to the reading of God's Word, beginning in Romans 5, verse 1. This is God's holy Word. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word to us this morning. Amen. Well, seeking the Lord's help and blessing this morning, let's turn back to the passage we read from Romans 5. Focusing our attention this morning, perhaps for the final time, on the end of verse 2, where Paul adds on this statement, applying it to those who have been justified by faith through faith in Christ, who thereby have peace with God and access by faith into this grace in which they stand, he says, and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. He doesn't just say it about they, them, those, but he says we, we through Christ rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And as most of you know, we've been spending a number of weeks considering this hope of the glory of God. We've considered the glorious appearing of Christ and in Christ, with Christ, at the last day, the glorious appearing of the Bride of Christ. We've considered the Christian belief, I believe in the resurrection of the body. We've considered that resurrection body as a glorious body and Most recently, we've considered heaven as the believer's glorious residence. 
But the Apostle Paul doesn't merely say that we who are justified have this hope of the glory of God. He says that we rejoice in it. We rejoice in it. According to Paul, this hope of glory causes the believer to rejoice. And the word for rejoice here is not the typical word for rejoice, although it is used in many instances in the New Testament, even by Paul in other uh, books of the New Testament, but it's not the typical word for rejoice. Uh, This word is frequently translated with other words, such as glory or boast. What Paul is saying here is that the believer's hope of heavenly glory causes him or her to glory or to boast. To glory or to boast. And there's joy involved in these things, but I think it's helpful for us to understand that it's not merely a sense of rejoicing in all these things, but there's a glorying in it. There's a boasting in it. And this joyful glorying and boasting really has two elements. First, it's inward. It begins inwardly, as with virtually everything in the Christian life. Inwardly, you could say, we glory. If you think of glorying and boasting, we often associate glorying with the inward source of that which we then boast about. And so first and foremost, Paul is saying that the believer in response to this hope of glory glories himself or herself inwardly. To glory inwardly involves a heightened inward pleasure and satisfaction in that which is perceived to be great or excellent or superior or glorious. We glory in that which we perceive to be glorious. We have a heightened inward pleasure and satisfaction in that which we find to be impressive or great or excellent or superior or glorious. Uh, And we do this in different ways and to varying degrees. Obviously, Paul is speaking here of that which we rejoice and glory in to a supreme degree, to to a great degree. But there are things perhaps that we glory in inwardly that are are to a lesser degree, legitimate things, such as uh, if uh, one of our children uh, is doing well in school and gets uh, straight A's on their report card, or A's and B's and makes the honor roll, or one of our children is involved in art or music and they produce something that's beautiful to the eye or to the ear, Uh, we can have a legitimate sense of, of Uh, taking pride in that. Again, not sinful pride, but we can have a sense of being pleased and inwardly satisfied and impressed with what we're observing in what our child has done. That's just one of many instances. You might follow sports and there's a a play. You know, maybe uh, Michigan football team or maybe your favorite baseball team. Maybe there's some amazing play that a player performs and you send a clip of that to somebody else. Hey, check this out. Okay? The reason you send it to them is because when you first encountered it, there was some inward pleasure and satisfaction. You were impressed at what you perceived to be great or excellent or superior. And so, in a sense, to a small degree hopefully compared to other things, but you gloried in that. You were excited about that. But 
Glorying inwardly, ordinarily, will tend to express itself in glorying outwardly, or what we might say, boasting. Boasting. And of course, usually when this, well, I shouldn't even say that. Often, sometimes, when this word appears in the New Testament, it has a negative or sinful connotation. But it's frequently used in a positive way, as we'll see. But when we glory inwardly, we have that heightened inward satisfaction, then we tend to express that glory outwardly. And we often will boast. In other words, uh, we draw attention to the object of our inward satisfaction. We, we often are animated and we have outward expressions of uh, our inward satisfaction in something. And so we draw attention to the object of our inward glory. So we glory inwardly and we glory outwardly. We boast. And Paul is saying that the believer in response to the hope of heaven to the hope of the glory of God that is coming for every believer, that the believer inwardly glories, inwardly has a heightened uh, pleasure and satisfaction in the hope of glory because he perceives it to be great, excellent, superior, and glorious. And then it has a tendency to produce animated, outward expressions drawing other people's attention to that heavenly hope. Uh, when, when things are running on all cylinders and cooking on all four burners in the Christian life, this is how we respond to the hope of glory. Uh, we love it, we're satisfied in it, and we want to talk about it and draw people's attention to it. Now, biblically speaking, what we supremely glory in or boast about reveals our spiritual condition. The things that we supremely, most emphatically glory in and boast about has a tendency to reveal our spiritual condition. And so we consider the person who is unconverted, the person outside of Christ, as Paul refers to that kind of person elsewhere, as the natural man. Uh, the natural man, conceived and born in sin. Uh, we're told that one of the marks of believers, 1 Corinthians 13.4, is that they have this Christian love that does not parade itself and is not puffed up. And so by contrast, the person who may have all kinds of other things religiously, but Paul says they don't have love and therefore they have nothing, uh, this type of person is puffed up and parades himself or boasts of himself. The unconverted tend to boast concerning themselves. John refers to this as the pride of life. They boast in their virtues, their characteristics, their wisdom, their strength. They boast in their perceived accomplishments. They boast in their wealth and possessions. The pride of life. They have an inward pleasure and satisfaction in what they perceive about themselves to be great, excellent, superior, or even glorious. And you can see this in Jeremiah chapter 9 and verse 23. Jeremiah chapter 9 and verse 23. Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Nor let the rich man glory 
glory in His riches. And we'll read verse 24 in a moment when we consider that which the believer chiefly glories in. Uh, It's a powerful verse that comes right after that. But the point is that the unconverted person is urged here, and certainly the believer is urged not to follow the pattern of the unconverted, but the unconverted person is urged not to glory in his wisdom, in his might or strength, and in his riches. That's what we tend to glory in by nature. We tend to glory in ourselves. We tend to be like Nebuchadnezzar who walked around on the palace uh, roof or wherever he was and he's looking out and he says, this is the great kingdom of Babylon that I have built. And he glories and boasts in his own accomplishments, in what he perceives about what he's done that's so great and so excellent. The unconverted also tend to glory and boast in their own goodness. Proverbs 20, verse 6 tells us that every man proclaims his own goodness, but a faithful man who can find. So you can see here that the unconverted person, broadly speaking, I think unconverted people would even agree with that verse. I mean, it's one of those verses that just cuts through even the skepticism of the unconverted to say, wait, well, I may not believe most of the Bible, but that is true, right? People tend to boast about their own goodness, and yet they rarely back it up with the kind of faithfulness that they claim to have. And many of us throughout society, believers and unbelievers, have been let down because uh, people have proclaimed their own goodness but have not followed through on their commitments. And, And we can look at areas in our lives where we have proclaimed this and proclaimed that, but a faithful man who can find. Uh, The Pharisees did all of their religious almsgiving and their prayers and their fasting in the sight of men so that people would see them outwardly. And rather than doing it for God in the secret place so that God would reward them, they received their reward of outward congratulation and glory among men which they so greatly and desperately desired. They proclaimed their own goodness. Religious virtue signaling, if you will. And Romans chapter 2, earlier in this epistle, we saw an example of the unconverted Jews that Paul was so familiar with, that he had uh, competed with in the past to be superior, as Galatians 1 tells us. That he he was uh, one of the great teachers and scholars of his day, advancing beyond his contemporaries. But uh, he, he took the exit ramp from that rat race, but he's reflecting on it. And he says, Indeed, you are called a Jew and rest on the law and make your boast in God. Now we're going to see it's a good thing to boast in God, but that's not the kind of boasting in God that we find here. Uh, if anything, they're boasting in their boasting in God, or they're boasting in the ways in which they think they've been faithful to God and they know all sorts of things about God. He says you're boasting in God and know His will and approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those in darkness, an instructor of the foolish. See, there's that superiority complex a teacher of babes having the form of knowledge and truth in the law, but they don't back it up. They're, they're hypocrites. He goes on to say that. 
uh, and ultimately they drag God's name through the mud and God is blasphemed among the Gentiles for that reason. But they proclaim their own goodness even in Corinth. Uh, perhaps even some true believers, but certainly the visible church at large was glorying in themselves, their spiritual gifts, uh, speaking in tongues, prophesying, healing, words of wisdom and knowledge, and even perhaps in their own godliness to some extent outwardly. And 1 Corinthians 4, verse 7, the Apostle Paul has to remind these people that they're acting carnally. They're acting like unconverted people. He says, for who makes you differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Right? So he's saying, even if you are a teacher and you have knowledge and you're obeying God's law and you're justified, sanctified, gifted with the spiritual gifts that He's given you, all these things, whatever you may have that other people may not have, all these things are gifts from God that you don't deserve. And they should humble you rather than producing this uh, inward glorying in yourself, this pride of life, spiritual pride and boasting. The unconverted boast in mere men. That was another problem in which the Corinthians were acting like the world, acting like the people in their culture. Uh, they were glorying in men. Paul, Apollos, Cephas. First uh, Corinthians 3.21 Therefore let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas. That's why we speak of preachers of the word as ministers. It means servant. It's the same word for a deacon. It means a table servant. It's someone who's just doing their job, following their instructions for the good of God's people. But they're not to be put on a pedestal. They're to be serving the people of God, the Word of God. And they've been given, Ephesians 4, as gifts to the church. They belong to the church. They belong to Christ. But these are gifts that Christ gives to the church and they're not to be exalted in or boasted in or gloried in, but rather uh, we're to respect and, and recognize the humility of that position of service in the kingdom. Uh, they belong to the church. Don't glory in them and divide the church because of these rivalries and boasting in men. He says, uh, all things are yours. Not just the preachers of the church, but uh, he says, the world life, death, things present, things to come, all are yours and you are Christ and Christ is God's. But you see the unconverted and the carnal sort of uh, backsliding Christian, they, they don't glory in those things, they glory in men. Uh, in Acts chapter 12, the people of Tyre and Sidon were glorying in King Herod. And they said after he gave an eloquent speech, the voice of a God and not of a man. And because Herod did not correct them and give all glory to God Himself, the angel of God struck Herod dead and he was eaten by worms. That's, what God, that's how God responds. He says, I will not give my glory to another. Do not boast in men. But that's the tendency. If it's the church, we tend to boast in, in our favorite YouTube preacher, our favorite uh, preacher, teacher, author. We tend to boast. We tend to glory in these people. If it's 
broadly in society. It's our favorite political party, our favorite political leaders. We, we tend to glorify them. We tend to magnify them. Everything stands or falls. Beware of that in the coming year. It's an election year. Every year is an election year, but most people don't pay attention to the important elections that happen every year, but it's a presidential election year. And of course, that brings out this tendency in the unconverted more so than ever because it's a high position. And so they're going to glory in one person or another. Glorying in men. The unconverted glory in their future. Uh, they, they think that they have a bright future ahead of them in this life. And uh, there are some unconverted people that are filled with despair and hopelessness, but, but many people, we could even say most people, maybe not as many as in the past, but, but most unconverted people, they get up in the morning, they have hope, they have a plan, they have an outlook on life, and they have things that they're looking forward to in the future. James 4.13, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting, James says, is evil. And this characterizes the world. They don't boast in God's sovereignty and submit to God's will and say, if the Lord wills, God willing. And again, we can tack these things onto our text messages, uh, you know, the initials DV, and we can make a trite thing of that or a virtue signal, but, but it's a good thing to do if we do it from the heart because what we're recognizing is, is that we don't have a guaranteed future in this life and in this world. And certainly the unconverted person has no guarantee of the good things that they're expecting because they could be gone in a heartbeat or lack thereof. And they're gone. And we've seen that in recent years more than ever. Medical emergencies happening all at once. Nobody can predict it. And all of a sudden, somebody in, in middle age or at a young age is down on the canvas, as it were. And we're all wondering if we'll ever see them again in this life. The unconverted foolishly boast in their future plans, in their future objectives, in their future enjoyments and entertainments. Uh, Psalm 49 warns us of this. Psalm 49 verse 10, which this psalm is a parable warning us of the folly of the unconverted in this respect. Uh, this unconverted, he sees wise men die. Likewise, the fool and the senseless person perish. So we all know everyone dies. We know that even in our own day, everybody would say, yes, I'm familiar with all these medical emergencies and I know that people are dropping like flies and it's happening and we hear about it in the news and the athletes and the politicians. Yes, we're aware of this. And we know they leave their wealth to others. And we go and we buy a used book and it has someone's name in it, in it from the library of Pastor So-and-So. And as pastors, we need to recognize our, our books at some point. 
unless our children become voracious readers, are going to end up in the hands of some random person sitting on some random shelf. Uh, We know this. We know it's the case. But we're told the unconverted, their inner thought is that their houses will last forever. Their dwelling places to all generations. They call their lands after their own names. Nevertheless, man, though in honor, does not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. We know it, but we don't know it by nature, do we? And though we can lament the pulling down of monuments and statues to people that perhaps don't deserve to have their monuments and statues statues pulled down as we see in our own day, it is a reminder that these things are not eternal. That you, you can even have a godly man who deserves in some sense, maybe I guess we could debate that, but deserves some kind of memorial. And yet, even someone deserving of that, it's pulled down and it's gone. And eventually, uh, to a large extent, that person is forgotten. The unconverted foolishly boast in their future. They boast even more foolishly in their sin. Psalm 52, which follows David in shame and in sorrow, confessing his sin and openly admitting it and owning it. I've sinned against you and you only, but see the contrast with Dog the Edomite, Psalm 52. And verse 2, well, verse 1, Why do you boast in evil, O mighty man? The goodness of God endures continually. Verse 7, Here is the man who did not make God his strength, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and strengthened himself in his wickedness. The unconverted, many of them, not saying all of them, again, there's a variety here in Satan's kingdom, but those who are outside of Christ more and more frequently, especially in our own day, once again, are boasting not even in their goodness, but in their evil. Or if they're boasting in their goodness, they're calling good evil and evil good. And they're boasting and virtue signaling about things that ultimately are shameful. Utterly shameful. This is the mindset that so characterized that ancient city of Sodom. Isaiah 3, verse 9. Speaking of God's people, the look on their countenance witnesses against them, and they declare their sin as Sodom. They do not hide it. They parade it. Literally, parading through the streets. Literally devoting entire months of the year to Pride, taking pride and glorying in what the Bible calls their shame. And and that's ultimately the way the Apostle Paul describes the unconverted person. A familiar passage, Philippians 3, the end of the chapter. We've been looking at this because it speaks of our citizenship being in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will give us the glorious body, and so on and so forth. We've been looking at that, but notice, let's not forget the contrast with the unconverted. Uh, Verse 18, For many walk, of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, seems that these people were in the church at one point. Many of them, and Paul watched them leave 
and he wept and he sorrowed over their departure from the truth, becoming enemies of the cross. In other words, of self-denial. Christ having demonstrated His self-denial and His obedience through the cross, these people become enemies of the cross, enemies of the reproach of Christ, of the shame that Christians experience on account of the Word of God, enemies to self-sacrifice and suffering for the sake of the Gospel, enemies of the Gospel itself, enemies of the cross whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. Now, I don't think that's only applicable to people who parade down the streets glorying in their shameful perversion, although it certainly can't be dissociated from that idea. But I think what it's saying here is ultimately, the unconverted person glories in things that will ultimately put them to shame. And my friends, if you think sexual perversion and gender confusion are the only things that are going to bring people to shame by the end of it, you're gravely mistaken. If we set our mind on earthly things, things that the Bible elsewhere says are passing away money and power and pleasure and reputation, and we set our mind on earthly things and we refuse the cross of Jesus Christ, and we glory in these things, these earthly things, understand that ultimately these things will fade away. They're like a vapor. They come and go. Uh, The wicked shall not retain these things, but they'll be taken away in due time. And they will be left ashamed and naked and divested of all that they clung to in this world. Uh, Daniel chapter 12, verse 2 puts it in this manner. Daniel 12, verse 2, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Or literally in Hebrew, abhorrence. The things that they loved, that they gloried in, that they viewed in this life as great and excellent and superior and glorious will be found to be small and insignificant and abhorrent and inferior and inglorious and dishonorable. They'll find that these things are nothing but dust and have no staying power, no enduring significance. And so they'll be ashamed. Proverbs 3, verse 35 says as much, The wise shall inherit glory, but shame shall be the legacy of fools. And that could be someone who has a legacy of honor and glory all the way up till the second coming. But my friends, for all eternity, from that point on, from that point on, their legacy shall be one of shame, disappointment, confusion, and failure. Failure to value that which is truly valuable. Also, last verse I'll quote on this point, uh, Hosea 4, verse 7. The more they increased, the more they sinned against Me. Speaking of the Israelites. I will change their glory into shame. That's a promise. 
especially for those of us in a very wealthy, very comfortable culture, the more we increase and we use our increase not for the glory of God. Of course, wealth is a good thing. We shouldn't boast in it or trust in it, but it's a good thing. But the more we use it against God and the more it takes the place of God in our hearts and in our priorities, he says, I promise I will change their glory into shame. That's not the kind of promise that ends up in one of these little books of promises, but it's a promise. It's a warning. Uh, And the Lord brings it to us to warn us that all of these things that we cling to as, as a substitute for Him, as a rival to Him, He is putting us on notice. This is I'm going to take this away. I'm going to take it away. And I'm going to turn your glory into shame. Well, what a contrast for the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what Paul tells us. Through Christ, we also have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And Paul says, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. What a contrast in terms of what the believer glories in and boasts about. Uh, The believer glories in and boasts about his God. Remember Jeremiah 9, verse 23, uh, where we were warned not to glory in our wisdom, our wealth, or our strength. But the Lord says, yes, you should boast, and let him who boasts, let him who glories, glory in this that he understands and knows me that I am Jehovah, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth, for in these I delight. He says, if you're going to glory, let him who glories, and it's inescapable, God created us to glory. God created us to appreciate and take pleasure and satisfaction in things around us to one degree or another. And the ultimate degree, the supreme degree of that glorying is meant exclusively for Him. And so, let Him who glories. Well, that's all of us. Let Him glory in this, that He understands and knows me that I am Jehovah, exercising loving kindness. In other words, love and mercy and judgment and justice or righteousness. We glory in God Himself. We sang about it. In Psalm 34, verse 2 and verse 3, the psalmist is glorying and boasting in the Lord in what the Lord has done for him. And he says, the humble will hear and be glad. Because this is the language of Canaan. We boast and we glory in what God has done. And other believers are going to appreciate that. They're going to want to know what God has done for our soul They're going to want to be able to then respond and say, yes, I've tasted and seen that the Lord is good and those who trust in Him shall be blessed and they shall lack no good thing. And so believers fellowship and share what God is doing in their lives and they boast and they glory in Him and in their relationship with Him. Not unto us, not unto us, but unto Your name be all glory and honor and praise for Your mercy and for your truth. God will not give His glory to another. He won't share His glory. He won't be content with a piece of the pie and believers 
glory in their God. They glory also in their Lord and Savior. They glory in their God who is the eternal Word made flesh. God manifested in the flesh. They glory in Christ. And, and that's Paul's theme in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 as he's confronting the false and ungodly boasting of the Corinthians in themselves. He reminds them of the sorts of people that God saves and the sorts of people that God has chosen. Verse 26, For you hear your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh. Don't boast in wisdom because ultimately you don't have any. You were born and conceived and brought into this world not wise unto salvation, but foolish unto destruction. God didn't call you because you were wise, and He couldn't have done that because you weren't wise, and I was not wise. He says, you're calling, brethren, not many wise according to the flesh. So even in the eyes of the world, the sort of wisdom of the world or the great intellectual powers that even unconverted people have, he says, very few Christians even had that sort of advantage. Most of us were not only spiritually foolish, but nothing to write home about intellectually either. Not many wise according to the flesh. Not many mighty, not many noble are called. The church needs to be careful that we don't glory in the sorts of people that come to profess faith. Oh, this person's a recording artist. Let's put them front and center. This person's a Super Bowl quarterback. Well, that raises other questions, but the point is, you know, God says glory in in the weaker things. Glory in the foolish things. Glory in the fact that I've chosen people that are not high and mighty and famous. He says, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised. God has chosen, even Christ Himself, despised and rejected of men. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. That no flesh should glory in His presence. But of Him you are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God. Where's your wisdom that you boast in? It's the mind of Christ. It's from Christ. It's all from Christ. It was a gift. We don't glory in it in that sense. Well, look at all my wisdom from Christ, but we glory in, look at Christ, the source of all wisdom and knowledge. He becomes unto us righteousness. Not, Lord, I thank You, I'm not like the tax collector or that sinner over there, but my righteousness is a free gift from God. Sanctification. Christ sanctifies, washes us with water by the Word. What do we supply? The spots, wrinkles, blemishes. What does He supply? The holiness. The sanctification. And redemption. He purchased us. The cost of eternal life, Psalm 49, is infinite. No one can redeem himself or his brother. Christ has paid it all. It is finished. In Him we have redemption. We boast in that. He says, so that it is written, He who glories, let him glory in the Lord. We glory in our Lord and Savior. We glory in our brethren. I'm not going to read these verses, but 2 Corinthians 8.24 and 9 verse 2, Paul, as you know as you read the New Testament, is frequently boasting in the churches that he was planting and shepherding and 
the, the, the growth in grace, the faith, the good works of these people, he'll go from one church to another and he'll boast in that church of the people that he just visited in the previous church. Not in such a way as to boast in men, but, but to commend them, in other words, and to give all glory to God Himself and to the Holy Spirit uh, who He ultimately is boasting in for having converted and sanctified these people. God's people boast in their weaknesses. 2 Corinthians 11 and 12, Paul says, I'm not going to be like these Corinthian false apostles and boast in my strengths. I'm going to boast in my infirmities, in my weaknesses, in just how unlikely it could ever be that I could do any good for the church. I'm going to boast in that. I'm going to boast in the persecutions and the pain and the the weakness that I've suffered, the injuries. Paul may have had problems with his eyesight. He may have had certainly uh, lasting injuries to his bodily frame. He's going to boast in how many people rejected him and stoned him and beat him with rods. He's going to boast in his weakness so that in his weakness, God would receive all the credit for the things that are happening. He preached to the Corinthians uh, in, in the Spirit with fear and trembling so that they would not give glory to men, but to God and to the power of the Gospel. God's people boast at times when it is necessary and when it is in proper proportion and when it is in a God-centered, God-glorifying way. God's people do sometimes boast in their own gifts and graces and authority and achievements. Now, that sounds counterintuitive, but we have examples of that in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 15.10, Paul says, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. So, he does boast there. He says he worked harder than the other apostles. But notice that he saw a necessity here to bring this to bear, to demonstrate that the gracious message of the Gospel that he preached was indeed powerful, that it had not been proclaimed in vain, and that the power of God's grace in his own life had not been in vain. And so he uses that as evidence of God's power. He gives all credit to the grace of God. And notice the previous verse, I'm the least of the apostles, not worthy to be called an apostle. Elsewhere, he calls himself the least of all the saints. So it's in a God-centered, measured, and necessary manner. He saw the necessity and he did it. He's constantly reminding them that he is an apostle when he writes because people are doubting that and then they're going to doubt the message from Christ that he's bringing. So it's necessary. He brings that to bear. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 8. Uh, he says, For even if I should boast somewhat more about our authority, which the Lord gave us for edification and not for destruction, I shall not be ashamed. Again, uh, he, he's being doubted here. They're doubting that he's an apostle, so he has to remind them. And the, the word boasting is used. Uh, verse 13 of that passage, he gives the qualification. We, however, will not boast beyond measure, but within the limits of the sphere which God has appointed us. So he's not exaggerating anything about himself. He's very careful to stay within bounds. 
a sphere which especially includes you. For we are not overextending ourselves. It's like with your children if you'd say, uh, son, I'm your father or I'm your mother, right? You're not overextending it and making, you know, using that uh, beyond the boundaries, but it's relevant to remind them that you're in that position so that you can help them and you can command them in some way. But he says, uh, we're not overextending ourselves as though our authority did not extend to you, for it was to you that we came with the gospel of Christ, not boasting of things beyond measure, that is, in other men's labors, uh, so on and so forth. You can see verse 17, he, he quotes the verse, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. And that's how Paul viewed it. When he had these necessary instances where he had to show his apostolic identification card, uh, he did it in a God-centered, proportional, careful way, and he said, essentially, I'm actually boasting in the Lord. That's equivalent, because that's what he says there at the end of the chapter. He who glories, let him glory in the Lord. And, and chiefly, we could say, believers boast in the hope of glory. They boast in that city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God, and therefore, God gets all the credit. Only the believer in that sense truly glories and boasts in that which is genuinely glorious. The world is boasting in things and glorying in things that are not truly glorious, but only the believer glories in those things that are truly glorious. In this case, heaven. Rejoicing in hope of the glory of God. You see first that the believer rejoices and boasts in his glorious God. Notice heaven is described as the hope of the glory of God. That's what makes heaven glorious. The highlight of heaven is the glory of God Himself. And uh, it's unfortunate in some sense we did sermons on the glorious appearing, the glorious body, the glorious residence. Let's not lose the glorious God who inhabits heaven as His throne room and who reveals His glory. And that we'll be boasting and glorying in knowing Him to greater and greater extents for all eternity. Also, glorious perfection. No sin. No misery. Uh, no tears. Uh, if there are tears, they're, they're quickly dried by God Himself as we enter into that eternal kingdom. No, tr no crying, no weeping, no mourning, no loss, no sickness, no disease, no death, nothing that offends, no sin in my heart, no sin in my environment. Glorious perfection, glorious fellowship. Heaven is a world of love and joy and peace and unity, seated as it were at a great feast with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all the prophets. In other words, all the people that you'd want to be with. Uh, it, it's, it's one of those tricky questions. You know, what happened to Lazarus uh, in between his death and his resurrection? Because, you know, if his, I don't want to cause you to stumble here, but it, it, you know, if his soul went to heaven and was perfected, you know, it came back and, and he no doubt was a sinner. You know, we don't know. We don't know exactly what happened there. It's one of those mysterious, humbling questions that reminds us that uh, how, how much we need the script, what the scriptures do tell us. But here's the point. Uh, the, the point is that if you were in Lazarus's position, 
of course you would obey the command to come forth out of the grave back with uh, Mary and Martha and some, you know, some good people. Of course, Jesus was there. That maybe makes it easier. But, but imagine that you're around Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the prophets. Or imagine that you were whisked out of this life at your death and there you are in the presence of Christ and the patriarchs and the prophets and the apostles and the martyrs and the church fathers and the, the pre-Reformation witnesses, who many of who uh, spilled their blood for the cross of Christ, and uh, the Reformers and the Puritans, and all of your believing family members and ancestors, uh, how difficult it would be to even think about the possibility of leaving that fellowship, that perfect peace and unity, uh, where there's one denomination, and there's one uh, belief system and total unity in the truth in Christ, in the presence of God Himself, glorious fellowship, glorious rewards. God is not so unjust to forget your labor of love and ministry to His saints. Even, think about this, Jesus, I know He uses hyperbole sometimes, uh, but I don't think this is hyperbole when He promised that even a cup of cold water given in the name of a disciple will be not left unrewarded. You will not lose your reward. Even giving a cup of cold water. How much more reward? We look at people around us in the church that are constantly serving the Lord and His people. What kinds of rewards are in store for our brothers and sisters? And my friends, when we watch them receive that reward, don't think we'll be envious. We will be rejoicing all the more, filled with, in some sense, our own reward at watching them receive their commendation and receiving ours as well. Good work. Well done. Good and faithful servant. Glorious duration. This is a reward. This is a heavenly inheritance that is reserved in heaven for us. And Peter says it does not fade away. It doesn't grow wings and fly away like money. It doesn't leave us high and dry like our earthly friends and people proclaiming their own goodness and so on and so forth. There's a glorious perfection of duration. This is an eternal weight of glory. The things of this life, gold and silver and clothing and food and drink and pleasures of various kinds, even legitimate pleasures, but especially we think of the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. John says these things are passing away and the lust thereof. But he who abides in the Word of God abides forever. How ought we to respond to these truths? Well, first we need to be patient. We need to be like Moses who was looking to his reward and seeing him who is invisible by faith. We need to recognize that the things people are glorying in around us, things people may have to a greater extent, greater prosperity, greater enjoyment, uh, greater experiences, and uh, things that God's given them in their family, and so on and so forth. We could become envious and bitter. No, we need to be patient because our far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory is coming. It's coming. And we need to recognize that it is coming 
and that that is our ultimate hope. We cannot invest ourselves in the, 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 the up and down, things that will very quickly, when we put our joy and our peace and our satisfaction in these earthly changing circumstances, the volatility index is off the charts and we will lose and we will experience loss. And even Christians at the last day will have things burned up and experience loss. No, invest it all in your heavenly treasure. Enjoy the good gifts in this life, but be patient for the city and for the inheritance which is yet to come. Secondly, be vocal. Boast about it. Speak about it. 1 Thessalonians 4.17 tells us that these realities of Christ returning in glory with His saints ought to be spoken. Paul says he's writing this to the Thessalonians so that they can comfort one another with these words. A church that is boasting in the glory to come is a church that's going to have ample reason to be comforted in times of affliction. A church that is almost in some sense ready for the hat to drop, ready for something bad to happen because they've got their mind fixed and riveted to that far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Comfort one another with these words. Be vocal. Boast of it. Speak of it. Thirdly, be wise. Be wise. What will it profit you to gain the whole world and lose your own soul? It doesn't make any sense as an unconverted person. And if your hope and your life revolves around these earthly things, then that's what you are. That's what you are. Unless maybe you're backsliding, but you know what? Why not just assume the, you know, play it safe and just come to Christ right now and repent and turn away all these things? Jesus says you need to hate that life insofar as you need to love him and you need to devote your life to him. He who would love his life will lose it, and he who will lose his life for my sake will gain it for all eternity. What's it going to profit you that your life and your joy and your peace for all eternity are going to be riding on these earthly things that are here today and gone tomorrow? Your death is imminent. You don't know when it's going to happen. It could happen today or tomorrow, and quite frankly, it could happen in 60 years. But if today's the last day that the Holy Spirit is striving with your soul and giving you some illuminating sense of the glory of the kingdom of God, if today's the last day that the Spirit prompts you and pleads with you, if it's the last time before He leaves you to hardness of heart for the next 60 years, well then I would say there's just as much urgency today to not be content to be near the kingdom on the doorstep but to enter the kingdom of God through faith in Jesus Christ let's pray Lord God in heaven reveal yourself show us these things cause those who are dead in trespasses and sins to be made alive and have their eyes opened to the glory of this kingdom of heaven. That they would sense the urgency that there will be many at the last day 
pounding on that door and on that gate which shall be shut. But may today, O God, be the day of salvation. The day in which those who are living in darkness will see the light and will even violently strive to enter the kingdom of God. Even as it says in the days of John the Baptist, that the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force. Holy Spirit of God, produce that and save many for Jesus' sake. Amen.